0: Here we are. It's uh, Deep Dives with Monica Perez, back with a returning guest, Anthony Raimondo, who is a fan favorite. We did a show at the end of the summer about, of all things, it was the the sleeper hit of the summer about uh, water restrictions and the real story behind so-called water shortages in California. But Anthony's my hero because... Of all the time during COVID, when I said, you know, where are the lawyers? The lawyers can beat these policies that are passed without without any process. He was there. He saved anybody who wanted to be saved in Fresno from getting shut down. I just love that. I respect it. He's a solid guy. Anthony, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Well, also, but what people don't maybe realize is that your bread and butter, like your your most, um, like where you've done the most work is labor law, right? That's correct. And we've talked a little bit about that in past episodes, but when I've been noticing these labor union victories in the news, two of them really stood out as having a similarity. One was the railroad workers and one were was the recent auto workers where they They get a great deal, and they go back for more. And when the auto workers' guy, whose name is like Sean Fain, which sounds so much like the IRA in in Ireland, and he he was wearing a shirt that said, "Eat the Rich," and he said something like, "We are bleeding these companies dry," or we've squeezed every drop out of them." And to me, that sounds like a setup for uh, making labor unsustainable in some of these industries. And I feel like it's a setup. I smell a rat and I thought, let me ask you, but you're going to, you're going to take us back, right?
1: Yeah. In order to understand what's happening now, you actually have to have kind of a, a big picture of the labor union from the time of the original National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s to the present. So we're going to kind of take a, a broad view of that, of that history with a little bit of context of what came before, because I'm shmi- one of the reasons I'm smiling is because the story of the railroad workers is not the union, you know, getting their piece of the pie. It's the Biden administration breaking the strike. The workers didn't win that strike. The Biden administration broke the, rail- work- the railroad workers union. Well, there's, there's collaboration there, which we'll get to right. how, that all, how that all works. But well, from, the from the workers' perspective, they lost that strike.
0: Really? Oh, but I'm didn't gonna... they get a great contract out of it?
1: No. Oh, they didn't get okay. what they, they did not get what they really? wanted. And more importantly, they lost leverage because the White House stepped in and prevented a work stoppage from actually happening.
0: Okay, because I, I guess, I mean, I don't know if there was spin in the news, because I definitely, it sounded like it was a great deal, and they were being...
1: Oh, Monica, you know you can always <laughs> believe what the news tells you. Are you
0: telling me <laughs> that it's it was propaganda, that I was reading propaganda? <laughs> wow. No, but I'm, I tried I'm to... I'm a climate conspiracy theorist, so you can't believe me. No, but here's the thing. like With it's something, if I don't have personal knowledge of it, you can't you can't figure it out really sometimes like there is no truth outlet that will you know it's just hard to know
1: mm-hmm. like labor relations which is the union industry dynamic is one of the the areas of of the world that is most commonly misunderstood and most most commonly misreported i mean it's, it's hard to say most commonly misreported given that the media lies about <laughs> virtually but it's 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 one area that is particularly ripe for propaganda because it's very it's a technical weird area that most people have never experienced, and the average person knows very little about how how labor relations law works, which is really three areas. So that we kind of get into our discussion, labor relations law as it, we talk about this as an umbrella falls into three areas. One of those areas is representation. Okay, collective bargaining is nothing more than the idea of the workers coming together and using their collective economic strength to even the bargaining table with their employer's superior economic strength to negotiate a collective agreement on behalf of that group of workers, hence collective bargaining. Right. A union is simply a tool via which an organization that is those workers, they form an organization which is a union. And that union speaks their voice collectively at the, at the bargaining table. Legally, when a union is quote-unquote certified or recognized, that union becomes legally the exclusive representative of the workers in terms of their negotiations and any discussions regarding their terms and conditions of employment with their employer. So that question of are they certified or recognized is a legal question. So How they get that status and whether they have that status is a whole body of law. The other body of law is one other body of law of the the two of three is collective bargaining, which is what is the actual process of negotiating and forming a formal agreement between the unit of workers represented by the union and the employer. And there's a whole set of rules and ways that that all works. Area number two, good faith bargaining. Area number three is... What I would call civil rights protections, which is the workers' right, their fundamental right to band together collectively regarding their terms and conditions of employment and their right to be free of retaliation for doing so and intimidation from doing so, right? That's sort of their fundamental set of civil rights in the workplace. Doesn't require a union to have it. In any workplace, if people are listening to this, you want to get in a meeting with your coworkers and have a talk about how unhappy you are about the wage scale your employer fires all of you, you can file an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board. It's legally actionable. Yes.
0: When I worked at a bank where your bonus was the majority of your pay for the year, and so if it had a bad year and they wanted to fire a bunch of people, they basically don't pay you till the very last day. And they would pay you what they wanted. So they would rank the class and they would pay the best person much more than the worst person. But there was a rule that you weren't allowed to tell each other what you made, what your number was. And I always wondered if that was...
1: It's illegal. It's patently, yeah. it's patently illegal. White-collar workers have absolutely no knowledge of I me. Mean, most workers have no knowledge of this, but white-collar workers, for a whole lot of reasons, just culturally don't think of themselves in these terms. And in that situation, I mean, you see these things all the time in, in white-collar environments. Law firms, God forbid, you can't imagine... All these things would be dealt with as things that are illegal under labor relations law, but white-collar workers don't really ever, hardly ever pursue those remedies.
0: I worked, I believe, 120 hours in one week. I worked 40 hours in a row once. And I remember thinking, like, there's absolutely no way this is legal. Like, there's no chance. I mean, I liked it. I wanted to. I was glad that I was had that opportunity.
1: Whether it's legal or not depends on how they were paying you.
0: Yeah, no, it was it definitely? I don't know. At one point, I was like, "They, I might not even be getting minimum wage." You know, yeah, I summer. mean, because yeah. it was just too many hours. It was almost all the hours of the week. I mean, it was really messed up. Like, I don't, I don't think they do it that way anymore. But so I think it was a, it was a relic of the coke, cocaine
1: era. Probably. Well, you know, a lot of the professional environments, you know, banking and law finance, these things, I mean, are some of the most horrific working environments you can imagine. I mean, someday. You and I can have a talk about why my relationship with my partners in the big law firm I was in melted down. I went out on my own, but that's a different, that's a different story. That's a good story.
0: I know that story because I don't know if people realize you were in, you were not that far from me, uh, not too, too long ago. Mm -hmm. And we both made the trip halfway and had lunch together. It was so fun.
1: It was very nice. It was very nice.
0: Anyway. So you told me some of these, uh, you know, your personal history and, um, it's definitely worth talking about. Okay. So keep going.
1: So anyway, let's rewind in history to how, why do we even have a legal framework for for what is an economic relationship? You're a libertarian, right? You would say, well, you know, employees want to band together for their economic strength. Good. They're doing it voluntarily. Employer has a need for their labor. They have a need for wages. This is perfect libertarian economic tension for the market to work itself out without any interference by the government. Right. Right which is the environment that we had, by the way, before any of these labor laws came to pass in the early part of the 20th century. And the problem with leaving that to a very unregulated free market is the employers used their economic strength in that unregulated free market to bring in mercenaries and kill the workers and their families. What? If if you ever go, you can Google the the Ludlow, Colorado mine workers. Oh, is that the fire? Where they, they, it was a fire and a shooting. It was a, it was a massacre. Wow! And we had industrial- now they
0: were they were on the property though, right? They were on the on the employer's
1: property, were they not? Oh well, I'm, it, I, that changes everything about murdering women and children in there. No, bed. I'm not. I'm not saying that, but yeah, I mean there was nowhere else for them to go.
0: Okay, that's what I was as, looking for. I was like, like, why the, would you be on their property?
1: Point, the point of this is that we had we did have in this country a massive problem. With a level of economic strife that was becoming more and more violent, Got because it. workers were also fighting back in a lot of these circumstances, and you know, guns were being fired, homes were being burned, people were people were dying. It was getting very, very ugly. in In that point in our history, when we were very unregulated. So the point of that is to understand why a social and political imperative arose for the government to do something to stop this violence. And the something that they did, because the the workers formed unions, what they called unions, which are very different from what we understand as unions today, which are massive corporate businesses. Right. These unions really were groups of workers who, you know, somebody above them had the guts to speak up and they kind of became the leader. And these organizations of people doing the job itself became the spokespeople of their fellow workers.
0: So the origin was legit. Like it wasn't a setup like it is now. Because now I, I, I think of unions as the HR department of an industry.
1: Absolutely. Well, once again, you can't imagine, I'm sure... That something that started out from a place of integrity that actually gained power (laughs) in its own right could be co-opted by the system to become a tool. Of course, of course. It's disheartening,
0: but for the brief moment in time when something legit gets But the origins of it it.
1: truly were in a, a kind of people's revolution out of desperation, out of desperation of poverty and poor treatment and poor working conditions. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about the bumper sticker crap of unions were the people that brought you the weekend and all that bullshit. Yeah. I'm talking about at a point in history where in the in the early days of America as an industrial powerhouse, mm-hmm. now I'm sure a libertarian would tell me eventually the market would have solved this problem if it had been left alone. Longer. No, no. The, like, why I wouldn't
0: you say had that violence
1: brought into play that there was nothing to temper it with.
0: I would say that. The problem with the quote Robert Barons and the labor stuff like from a libertarian point of view is you had government interfering with the organic, you know, power struggle there. So well, if you had before, people,
1: government, before government interfered, no, but I'm saying like between private parties.
0: But what I'm saying is when they killed those women and children, if I recall correctly, the government was on the wrong side of that. They yeah. did not, I remember the story now that you mentioned it. So what I'm saying, same thing with like robber barons. When Rockefeller wanted to buy somebody's oil business and they didn't want to sell, he used um, unscrupulous and illegal tactics that, that the government went along with instead of protecting the victim. So a, a like an anarcho-capitalist might say, it would have worked out in a totally free system. However, you have a government and the government was corrupted. And, and that what I, makes it impossible sure. for the markets to clear.
1: Yeah, but if, with the markets clear, I still think those robber barons would have killed those people nonetheless. What would have stopped them? Right, 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 or, right. With the imbalance of power. But anyway, which, then you're probably going back to origins of lots of things. But at any rate, let's get let's on track to so, work. So for whatever the origins of it were, the reality was there was this violence, there was this turmoil, there was this chaos in the country that could, demanded a political solution. And the political solution was the creation of what we now know as labor law with the passage of the National Labor Relations Act. This created a structure for union representation. It created rules and enforcement mechanisms for collective bargaining, and it created an enforcement mechanism for workers to get legal redress did they face retaliation. And it also has its own system of adjudication. Have you ever seen this book? (laughs) Mm-hmm.
0: Only One Place of Redress, African Americans, Labor Regulations, and the Courts from Reconstruction to the New Deal. I should have read it before, but I only just uh, unearthed it in my my books by David Bernstein. I'll read it, and if it's great, I'll send you a copy. Perfect.
1: Anyway. The National Labor Relations Board has exclusive jurisdiction over all these areas. You cannot go to court. For example, you can't go to federal district court simply to enforce this law. You have to go to the National Labor Relations Board, and they have their own internal system of judges, and they even have an appellate process, and you can get to the federal courts once you've gone through the National Labor Relations Board process. So they're a very large administrative agency. On the unfair labor practice part of this, which are violations of federal labor law, they have investigators that come out and investigate these things, and then they have an adjudicative department that prosecutes unfair labor practices before and, 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 and adjudicate the administrative law judges who are only NLRB judges. They aren't general purpose federal administrative law judges. They are labor law experts that are solely employed by the NLRB and then their decisions can be employed, uh, appealed to what is supposed to be a, a five-member board. And the the idea of the five-member board initially was there would be two representatives from labor, two representatives from industry and one kind of disinterested one to keep the board fair. Now, of course, in reality, what always happens with these things as the uh, executive branch swings one way or the other, each side packs the board one way or the other and they try uh, to game the system. During Obama, they simply, they couldn't, Obama couldn't get anybody confirmed to the LRB because it requires Senate confirmation. So the board was paralyzed because it didn't have a quorum and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases that they had adjudicated had to be reversed because they decided that without a quorum in violation of federal wow. law. Wow! So it's, it's an agency that has not been without turmoil in its history. But this was the structure that they created, they thought was going to work. In 1947, they passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which, which um, revised the law, much to the chagrin of organized labor, who felt that the law the, the details, honestly, are not important for this discussion, but they felt the law made everything more favorable to employers and less favorable to unions, which is probably true. So, where we are now is we have two ways that a union be- can become the exclusive bargaining representative of the workers. One is, you know, union organizer walks into the employer's office and says, I have a majority of your employees have signed authorization cards, which are little cards that say, we want to be represented by the union. And we're demanding that you negotiate with us as their representative. And at that point, the employer has the right to say, okay, you're right. They want you, they, let's sit down and negotiate. And you're recognized, which can have some implication in the event the, the, the employer or the employees want to push that union out. The other way, which is for a long time has been much more common, the employer says that's nice i'm not going to negotiate with you then the union's option is to file a petition for certification with the national labor relations board which triggers a secret ballot election in the workplace and literally what happens is an nlrb agent will come out and they'll set up a little ballot box remember back in the old days in ancient times when we would go vote in person and they had a thing called a called a voting booth and it was like yeah. a portable canvas booth and it had curtains. And you went inside and there was a physical ballot and you marked your ballot.
0: I did that in somebody's house once. Right. That's how you know, local... Don't like-
1: yourself, Monica, because <laughs> you know, now we have democracy in <laughs> power and remote. You just drop your... And, and, like, where I live now, it's <laughs> really depressing. They don't even... You have no option to vote in person here. They just oh. have drop boxes that are set up around the area you know, like little metal mailboxes, and you just throw your ballot. It's like really. It I like, feel like all right, all right, it's like ending any anymore.
0: <laughs> you you might as well just like rub the belly of a Buddha. Like I hope that my guy. You know, it's
1: it, why well, call it the suggestion box.
0: Yes, exactly. Very well put. Yes, exactly.
1: So at any rate, at any rate, this is what they would do. They uh, a federal agent would come out, and there was a whole legal process to determine. Okay, what group of workers are eligible to vote, and There's a whole body of like logistics of like, how do you do an election in this particular place to make sure it preserves secrecy and fairness and nobody gets intimidated. And there's like a walkthrough and you set all this up. I've done this many times in all kinds of different work facilities. And there's a whole technical process for these elections. And then when election day comes, it used to be 42 days from petition to election, which they've cut down significantly now. And in that 42 days, both sides would literally run like a little political campaign. Union organizers would talk to the workers about why they should vote for the union. And someone like me would hire what we call labor consultants, what, you know, they call union busters. And <laughs> we well, you have a set of rules, both sides have a set of rules we have to follow about what you're allowed to say to campaign. But historically, the federal courts, even the most liberal federal courts recognized that this process was supposed to be a vigorous debate in an atmosphere free of intimidation, but a vigorous debate where the employees could hear both sides and make a free and uninhibited choice about whether they wanted union representation. Now, unions always claim that employers just make the whole thing a process of intimidation. I can tell you that in my career, and I've done a lot of these, I've never had an election that I was in control of reversed and I've only had one that was ever litigated. And that one, uh, initially the ballots were impounded, but we went to the Court of Appeals, at California agricultural thing. So it's a different system. But ultimately, we got a, a ruling from the Court of Appeal uh, here that the state violated the civil, the state and the union colluded to violate the workers' civil rights in the election because they refused to count the votes. Who for, pays? Yeah. Who paid you? The employer? In that, in that case? Yeah, I was working pro bono for the employees.
0: Wow, pro is, bono. That's a whole
1: different That's a whole different story which we could do one episode on that case alone.
0: Wow. I, I think we have touched on that case but how about um on other occasions do the employers pay you?
1: Yeah, typically I'd be hired by an employer that, you know, no employer wants to be unionized. This is the right. reality of it, right? Yeah. So I would be hired by the employer um and that can either be something like, hey, I've been they they're going to have this union election. I need you to get me through this and how do I run a campaign and how do I talk to my employees about this and tell them why I don't think they need a union. In fact, I, got the, I had an election reversed against a union for intimidating a worker who, didn't, who was trying to talk to his, his coworkers about why the union was bad. Hmm. But um, at, any rate, at any rate, yeah, an employer would hire me to do that. An employer might hire me if they're accused of an unfair labor practice as sort of a traditional defense attorney type thing. Um, and then also I'm often hired to conduct the collective bargaining negotiations themselves because, again, those have legal requirements and they're legal documents and the negotiation process typically, especially the, the smaller employers, the types that I tend to represent, really need representation in that process. So, so now we have these structures that are enforced by the National Labor Relations Board, which is an administrative agency that's ultimately a political yo-yo back and forth between the parties. So What's been happening in recent years is the Obama administration, of course, the Democratic Party is very deep in the pocket of you. And how that developed is we went from these sort of worker-revolutionary-type organizations pushing back on a very, very oppressive and dangerous economic environment. Over time, and I'll use him as an example because he's such a good one, you had folks like Jimmy Hoffa, who Jimmy Hoffa was a truck driver who got involved with the teamsters at the time when workers were, you know, were running the union and he got involved with the union, I think originally probably with some legitimate ideas, but very quickly people like Jimmy Hoffman, he's not the only one. They figured out that this union thing just was really a good money-making proposition because here's the way that it works. And you're going to love this because you have a legal background. So you'll love the way they do things in statutes where You know, everything's about definitions, right? Mm-hmm. And this is why the wall they create between everyday people and the law is in the law. They define words that people understand in ordinary life in a way that's completely different. Mm-hmm. So the fundamental terms of right, art—that's how but,
0: I learned in law school. They used to call it. Oh, it's a term of art.
1: The fundamental right that is embodied in all of labor relations law is the workers have the right to join or form unions, or to collectively for their mutual aid and protection, and to negotiate their terms and conditions of employment with their employer. Okay, so in other words, they can act together to alter their working conditions and protect each other within their work environment, whether they have a union or not, and they also have the right to do that by forming and joining unions. So, workers can talk to each other freely about unions in the workplace, subject to certain rules and limitations. I'm taking a very far back view here. Within all this, there's lots and lots of technical and they can organize for unions. Once you have a, collect, once there is a union that's certified, the employer or recognized, the employer has a legal obligation to bargain in good faith with that, with that union, meaning you don't have to, you have no obligation to agree, but the employer must bargain, must bargain with the intention of, the true intention of reaching an agreement, right? So they can't like, just offer things that are ridiculously low to the union then because all they want to do is break the union and they have no interest in reaching an agreement at all, they have to actually genuinely try. Hmm. And so this has developed into a whole body of litigation of how do we tell when somebody's really trying, right. like, you know, making making offers to the union that are predictably things you know that they would never accept, you know, refusing to bargain at all, like, you know, playing right. sessions all the time and be, you have to take it seriously and you really do have to make an effort to do it. And then you have a written collective bargaining agreement. Well, one of the things is Because the the core of the act is employees have the right, the the choice. Because by the way, all the things I just said, they also have the right to refrain from all those things. Joining unions, participating in collective action. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. They also have the, in writing, they have the right to refrain. Absolutely, 100%. But they
0: have to pay dues, even if they're not members. We're about to get to that. Okay.
1: If there is a union that is certified or recognized, even the workers who want to refrain are still represented by that union because they're in the bargaining unit. The bargaining unit is a term of art for the group of workers represented by the union. This would be the group of workers covered by the union contract. So the balance that we've played, and this is this weird legal definitional thing, is union security, which is you have to be a union member to work here, is legal except in every collective bargaining agreement, as you mentioned, requires people to pay dues. How do they do this? The union cannot mandate that a person become a full union member. What does that mean? So the law says, if you read the law, it says a union security agreement requiring a person to be a member of a union is legal as an exception to the right to a refrain. However, membership has a special meaning under the law. Membership means they, if they don't have to join the union. Unions have lots of rules, like you can't cross a picket line or they can fine you, things like that. They can't make you actually join the union as an organization, but they can make you pay the dues and fees that others have to pay because you don't get to have a quote-unquote free ride is was this theory right oh well if we don't make monica pay dues and she's covered by the union contract she's getting the she's taking a free ride on all the hard work the union's doing she's getting all the benefits of union representation and she's not paying her fair share so monica you don't want to join the union you still have to pay dues
0: but, but why can't I just opt out and negotiate my own wage and not get protected by their arbitration? Yes, by law,
1: the union is the exclusive bargaining representative. And oh. A majority, an exclusive oh, bargaining see. representative. And, you, and, I, and that includes your yourself. Pro, a majority of co-workers. It's the same reason why you're governed right. by Joe Biden. Because a majority of your fellow wow. co-workers okay. voted or chose through that recognition right. process to be represented by these people. So it is a service... Right? What is the union now? Because the unions now now fast forward. Unions are now massive corporate organizations that are as big as you know any corporate major corporation that you can imagine. They have hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars at their disposal. I mean, these are from the out from to an alien they would be indistinguishable from the Microsofts and Facebooks and Googles and you know these are huge huge corporate entities that siphon vast amounts of cash in the form of dues out of workers paychecks, because these dues are paid in the form of a deduction from your check, just like your social security, just like your taxes. Every time you get paid, the union gets paid and you can't really, the only ability you have to opt out of it is that you can ask the union and they, they really don't let people know this. You ever like to demand an accounting that what your dues are being used for is actually representation of you. You don't have, you don't, theoretically have to pay for the union's political activities and other things that are unrelated to representation of you. But of course, it's very difficult to prove that and they're good at protecting the money part of it. But they bring in vast amounts of cash and now more and more unions are not necessarily run by workers. They direct workers. Most of the time now when I'm dealing with collective bargaining, I'm dealing with a union guy who's never done the job that the workers are doing. And many times, these guys, these people are like left-wing, you know, master's degree in, you know, some sort of, you know, cultural liberal arts sort of thing. And they go to work for the union and say they're representing, well, I know a guy who used to be a friend of mine who doesn't like me very much anymore. It's Trump, but he's a, he's works for a union where he represents janitors. He's got a master's degree. He's, you know, grew up as a privileged kid and went to, Syracuse University and went, they got a master's degree in I don't know, urban planning or something like that. And works makes, makes you know, I don't know, 80 to 100 grand a year working for a union representing people that make minimum wage who have no education. I mean, the union people typically have a much better wage and benefit package than the workers that they represent.
0: And is that what it is? It's just a career? Or is there, you think, some underlying ideology or agenda that, that drives people into that business?
1: I think as much as any college liberal kid spouting, you know, the the left wing dog. I mean, yeah. how how much of it is? I mean, they're captured. I mean, they're. They want to do well so,
0: by doing good. You know what I mean? I mean like, you know, I,
1: mean, I think I think some of them probably do genuinely have good intentions. Like, I think a lot. I mean, and some of my conservative friends get mad at me. I actually think some the the danger of things like the climate change movement is yeah. the kids on the ground that are like gluing their hands to the road, true they're believers. Sure.
0: Yeah, they're true believers. Yeah, that no, is a no, problem. Yeah. are
1: captured. They are sincere in what they are doing. We <clears throat> believe we are all going to die if they don't do this. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but the destructive impact is the same whether they, you know, whether right, they're right.
0: Sincere, or well, sincere. Well, are unions destructive? Do you think that they, that the, the dues are worth it that they get that, no, and, I mean, and what's the yeah, problem? I think the they're problem?
1: destructive as they're constituted now, because I've I have never seen well, a union that's I, yeah. where the workers are getting their money's worth. Essentially, what the way that I would describe it to uh, any person who's considering being represented by a union is that it's a fee for service. It's a fee for service entity. Like, I mean, like, a ta- like it's a tax. Like, it works just like the government seems. Whatever, like. the, you, yeah, it's a fee for service, but you can't stop paying for it if you don't like the service. Right, just like the government. Right, because if you don't pay the dues, they you're fired.
0: But do you think it's you know this this the UAW whatever? It seems like they make a lot more money under these collective bargaining than they ever would. Just you know, a guy who's like standing on an assembly line making a hundred thousand dollars a year is a lot. It,
1: in certain industries like the auto industry, I think it does. I mean, I don't think you can deny that in those industries it has helped certain workers but, at certain times. But they've also right. had, they've also had mass layoffs in those industries. Right, exactly. And one of the ways that you know, what you think of as your stereotypical overpaid auto worker, you know, bloated collective bargaining agreement. Where there the, the repercussions of those, for example, is more and more of like the parts production has been outsourced to other countries and yeah. American workers have lost jobs because down the line, we're gonna pay for this here in our GM plant or our Ford plant. Well, our third-party transmission gear supplier. Yeah. Over here in Ohio, we can get that done in Southeast Asia, cut that cost, and that will cover our increasing cost due to the union over here. And the other the other part of it that you've got to remember that when you talk about the auto industry is what a dirty game. You talk about government interference. Your your libertarian listeners, as much as I annoy them, will love this story because it's perfect for libertarians. Remember how Obama saved us from the uh, economic crash? Cash for clunkers, what, what did he do? Right. Oh, Obama, remember um, Main Street before Wall Street? Oh, yeah. Yes. What What did you know, he do? Gave everybody money? I mean, saved the okay. auto industry from filing for bankruptcy, don't you remember?
0: And saved I, all those jobs. If it was, I don't remember. I the, was, I did not okay. read the news before I had the part of, part of radio what, show. He must have done it in 2012 before I started reading the, the,
1: the economic our, our economic salvation from the crash that the, the, the Obama administration came up with was among, uh, his addition- first, term, his yeah. first term. His first term you're talking about. Yes, I did country? not
0: read the news until his second term.
1: Okay. So in addition to bailing out the banks, um, he also bailed out the auto insurance industry. And the big, the big story at the time was we have to bail out the auto industry, the auto manufacturing. If we don't bail out the auto manufacturing industry, all these workers are going to they're, they're go bankrupt. They're going to go to a federal bankruptcy court. And all these workers are going to lose their jobs and their children are going to starve. So we have to give them government money. So, the auto industry got a big, fat bailout. Well, why would a Democratic president help the auto industry, especially at that time? Well, they weren't bailing out the industry. They were bailing out the union. Because again, here's Mm. a little technical aspect of labor law. A federal bankruptcy judge can terminate a collective bargaining agreement
0: Mm. of the bankruptcy
1: process. Mm -hmm. A a federal bankruptcy judge has the power to literally rewrite that union contract to make the company sustainable. because People hear bankruptcy, they don't understand that there's different types of bankruptcy. Right. The auto industry was never in danger of like a chapter, chapter 11. Like when you should wear, right? You know, they're, they're having a sheriff's auction to get rid of the Right, right. They're factory. selling the chairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not happening. Right. It would have been a reorganization. Right. Well, as part of a reorganization, a federal bankruptcy judge, without any of the protections of this collective bargaining process, could have said, you're paying your people too much. You got to cut these wages yes. Disaster. Which is what
0: Detroit should have done with the teachers, and I think they might have
1: that's around probably, that time. That's probably the biggest reason why they filed for bankruptcy. To be yeah. honest, you know, I mean, definitely not for having it stopped. It that's why the reason why Stockton <laughs> filed for bankruptcy was to rewrite all of their collective bargaining agreements in the public sector. Right. Okay. So. Where, so where we are now is you have these massive corporate entity unions that have lots of money and lots of political influence and lots of influence within the Democratic Party. The Obama administration was very effective at moving the ball forward. The big, the big thing they thought, the big touchdown they thought they were going to get during Obama was called the Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA, which died on the vine in Congress because they couldn't even get Democrats to go along with it. But what it was going to do is get rid of elections. And so if the union showed up in the employer's office with a majority of signatures, boom unions recognize no election no campaign um, workers are represented wow okay do you start flowing there were enough democrats that were uncomfortable with the idea of taking away the workers right to right to vote okay. on whether they would have a union that it never got anywhere but they changed things at the NLRB level through regulation and case law in ways that were very favorable to unions they shortened the time between petition and election as I, as i had mentioned the more time you have, it, it tends to benefit the employer.
0: Okay. Uh, it's starting to come together for me because what I was trying to figure out is where is this resurgence in labor union activity coming from? What is the cause of it? It's so bizarre to me.
1: Well, here's the thing. It's not really a resurgence. Right. Okay. Right. So here's what here's what's happening based on, and the, my source here, I've actually looked up uh, this morning the uh, the latest Bureau of Labor Statistics, statistics I could find, which is for 2022. And I'm going off the top of my head because I should have written it down, but I didn't. <laughs> That's fine. Historically, private sector unionization has been declining precipitously since the 1950s. And that has never been averted. In 2022, that decline continued. It was down to 6% for the private sector as unions. 6.1% in 2021, which doesn't sound like a big decline, but you know, it's, it's a continued downward trend. Whereas you would think for the media that it's that that's like a reversal, that we've seen this big reversal and this big resurgence. Most notably, fast food, which is also grouped statistically with hotel workers, 2%. And it's been flat at 2% for as long as anybody can remember. And it's flat right now.
0: I have to comment on this. First of all, I don't want to like name names because I literally know this person, but I was. Noticed somebody's name. I, I there was someone I knew from an Ivy League school who was working at a fast food restaurant, and I was totally like, What? That just makes no sense." Like that person was really ambitious and smart, and this is weird. Then I saw that name in the newspaper as being one of the like rank and file under, you know, underpaid workers looking for a union in that establishment. And I was like, "Oh, that person." has been working there for years with this goal. That was my opinion of that. Um, so I think that there's there's definitely a bigger picture, uh, whatever. There's some machinations behind the scenes. And then the other thing, one of the very first blog posts I ever wrote like 10 years ago was about waitressing. When I was, I think I was 17... Um, I worked in a restaurant. I think you get two dollars an hour, and then the taxes take it, so you get a paycheck that's zero. But the t- the tips I used to get, I mean, I think I made six hundred dollars a week if I recall correctly, and just cash. Like they weren't taking any taxes out of that. And um, it, all the women I worked with basically were single moms, and it was so I, I was pretty blue collar and. Um, growing up and all the guys I knew worked in construction and the gals, you know, the go-getters and the gals were waitresses that you could maintain a living, maintain a household with the money you made waitressing. And I've noticed that, that there's all this movement to have like minimum wages for waitresses, like $15 an hour. And they're it's spearheaded by the restaurants themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because there's just so much money on the table, literally that, they just, the surplus is going to the worker. So $15 an hour is like a quarter of 15% of your, t- of your checks. Right. You know what I mean? It's a quarter. <laughs> and they are just taking that money away and using it to pay the wa- dishwashers and stuff. And anyway.
1: Unions in particular, one of the things they hate is incentive-based pay. They want everyone to get paid kind of these flat things like, You know, unions, you know, in in agriculture, for example, things like piece rate where people get paid by the box. The workers love it because the ones who hustle make good money. And um, uh, unions hate it because you have to work harder to make more money and they don't like that. So what ends up happening is because you have these large corporate organizations representing the workers, they're service providers, but they have their own interests. They have their own organizational interests that are not necessarily aligned with the workers. And, you know, you see this all the time. I'm in the middle of a, of a collective bargaining negotiation right now for a, a small company. And the whole thing has stalled completely because of the union. And, you know, these workers, they're, the workers, sadly, are active at the table. And, but they, they, the union is not doing its job for them. And it, it, my, my client's very frustrated. And we're literally stuck where there's nothing we can do because we've given them a proposal that they won't, they won't agree to, but they also won't tell us what they want. Like you we said, we're willing to do this. And they're saying, we don't like that.
0: Well, do they have the same requirement to negotiate in good faith that the employer does?
1: They do. And I can go file an unfair labor practice charge against them with the National Labor mm, okay. Relations Board, which of course, you know, makes the relationship a lot worse between us. Right. But the only real answer to that is that the National Labor Relations Board will just tell them, don't do that anymore. Now, there's some things we can do to move this along in other ways that aren't burdened to the show. I mean, there are legal mechanisms within the collective bargaining process that we can use and to to move it along. But I'm just using it as a small example for, you know, I have had, I have had, I don't want to say I've had no good experiences because I actually have had, uh, you know, experiences here and there. There's one company that I represent that I do their collective bargaining. And it's usually very easy every time it comes up because there's a good relationship there. And there's a, a union rep there who's a solid guy who is, you know, he's kind of old school. And to him, like, he's very big about, like, having trust with the employer at the table. Right. And so we're able to work things out with them. And that one works really well. And in that case, I would say the employees are getting their money's worth. Okay. You know, in and, and this one, though, and I would say more often than not, more often than not, these these guys get into the union because they don't want to do the harder job that they were doing first. And it's, an, it's kind of an easy gig where you get a lot of job security and o- they are definitely overpaid, particularly, typically compared to the people they represent. Yeah. And so where we are now is the Biden administration has gone back. The Trump administration, everything kind of stalled. I wouldn't say Trump moved things backwards. He just kind of stalled the, the, the pro-union progress. But the union supported him. Well, union workers voted for him, but the unions themselves did. There were some unions who endorsed him. Rem- remember? Me, I don't recall that. I'll be honest with you. There were some unions that were bitter towards Obama because Obamacare messed up some of their medical trusts because some of their plans had to pay penalties for being Cadillac plans, right? And the idea was that I, I believe that the idea was that they wanted to punish companies or you know that provided these sort of like executive level plans for higher paid employees right. to help subsidize lower cost plans. But some of the the more generous union medical plans got caught up in that, and there was a big. Bit of tension between the Obama administration and unions over that for a while.
0: Okay, it says the police union uh, endorsed President Trump in New York, Philadelphia firefighters and paramedics.
1: Now, I, I actually should have qualified this at the beginning. What we're really talking about today is is public sec- private sector unionization. Public sector unionization. <gasps> oh, public sector is a whole different animal.
0: That's there's a big Supreme Court case coming yeah. down on that right now. Public sector. Are you aware is- of that?
1: Public sector is a whole different animal. Okay, you
0: don't do that at all.
1: A good friend of mine, James Young, works for the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, and they've spearheaded a lot of the the teachers union cases. And they've used the First Amendment very effectively because when you're talking about a public employer, now you're talking about government action, which triggers all of the Bill of Rights stuff. Right. Freedom of speech and freedom of association. It's public sector. Public Public employees are not included under this National Labor Relations Act that I talked about. Right The two big exclusions are public sector employees and agricultural employees are not covered by this federal law
0: okay. so uh, I just for to keep people up to date, there is a Supreme Court case being heard right now, and uh, it's because um government employees who belong to unions have the right to not be part of the union, but some places have passed laws or enacted policies where they're not, Telling them they have those rights,
1: right? That's and the, that's the National Right to Work Legal Foundation, right? That okay, That's all those cases
0: before the Supreme Court right now, right?
1: They've used the First Amendment to chip away because back in the day, right. in the early days, I mean, even when they, when they, when they first passed, pl- you know, it was FDR signed the National Labor Relations Act right. initially, and even he was opposed to public sector unionization. The reason that, I know the reason that public employees were excluded was that. There was the idea was, no, you don't get to use your collective economic strength to have the right to extort from the taxpayer. Right. Right. No, you don't get to, you're, you're taking the idea. They really thought the, like the philosophy was, they believed that giving public employees, like the right to organize and the right to strike was like giving people the right to steal from their neighbor. Right. Hmm. They viewed public employment was supposed to be seen as like a calling, like you're in service. And they saw it as gross that people would, like, threaten to strike. Like, you're threatening to strike to get more money from your fellow taxpayer? That's your neighbor.
0: My mother said she she knew it was a watershed moment in this country when the teachers unionized. And she said that, and I asked her why, and she said that they were going to model for children that the way to resolve your differences is to walk out and start a fight. She was horrified by that. I'm not sure I completely intuit what she was saying, but she was just horrified at that idea. But I have an important big question, and then I have a few little random things I want to ask you about. Um, One is, and this is what Kelvin's saying, in a few years' time, the the only, only robots and AI will be members of any union. And I think that goes to my my idea that, and I might have told you this in a previous show, that my grandfather, when he saw uh, the dock workers really ha- getting a, a crazy, overly generous union contract, he said they are working themselves out of not only a job, but an industry. And at that time, and he said that, this is my father telling me, 95% of all shipping in the whole world went through U.S. ports. And over time, that's now. I mean, we're not like it's. Uh, you don't even see people registered here. And then I also noticed that in the fifties, they created what is possibly the greatest wealth maker of all time, which is the cargo, the uh, cargo container, the shipping container. And I always wondered, in the back of my mind, if this was true. But if not, it is an, an example of what might, you know, might be happening now, which is if the Stevedores were were asking so much, the companies couldn't be blamed for firing them all and and refitting for for shipping containers. And I wonder if that's what's happening with the UAW now.
1: You asked me if unions are destructive to the workers or helpful to the workers. And the, the, the better answer to that question is really to look at what's happened. And I think, you know, short-term, you might have auto workers that are overpaid but long term, what's happened, what has happened to American manufacturers, right? Right. Look at the 1950s when we were at the peak of private sector unionization in the United States. Well, so that's when unions really had their strongest grip on their influence on the American industrial economy. What has happened to the American industrial economy from 1950 to today? Certainly they played a part of that, right? Yeah, they, you're telling me that, and I'm not suggesting, the government has certainly played their role.
0: Clinton said that NAFTA... His goal with NAFTA was to trans, to create a, to make the U.S. economy a service economy, put the last but, nail in the coffin and in the industrial economy.
1: But you know, you, unions happily held hand in hand with the government and skipped us down that road. Right. I mean, they have their share of responsibility in it, and they have a heavy amount of political influence, especially within within the the Democratic Party. Yeah. The automation question, by the way, which was a great one is a good example of this because that's also a combination of union and government because you have the union influence in government. all you have to do is look at California where unions have a tremendous amount of influence. Um, What's driving, one of the biggest things that's driving automation in California is the rising minimum wage, which is not a union issue. The government issue, it's going to be $16 an hour come January. Um, And so you have, you know, I have a client who has an agricultural processing facility. Okay. So they have a lot of like unskilled labor, especially quality control. People who look at the product as it moves along these lines and they literally hand pull out, you know, because these are ag products, the things that don't look good, right. that are are quality issues. They're automating all that into robots. And he told me, he's like, the minute they said it was a $15 minimum wage, I picked up the phone to put capital towards investing in robots and automation. So you know, you see Gavin Newsom pushing minimum wage to $16 an hour and a $20 an hour fast food minimum wage, you're not going to see a fast food worker in five years.
0: Right. So, this experience I had recently, and I've told you before about my farmers, my blueberry farmers in Oregon they're in Portland city limits, believe it or not, even though they're on an island like between two rivers, it's very actually quite, quite beautiful. And they've given up on, they were certified as organic blueberry farmers, which is a process and it has value. And they uh, rent, they lease their farmland now to potato growers for potato chips because once Portland passed that $15 an hour minimum wage, they no longer could hire people to pick blueberries. Then I was, so I've said that before, but I was just in Whole Foods the other day and there's organic blueberries there and they were they were from Peru. I mean, I don't even, I didn't even know they grew blueberries in Peru, but mm-hmm. all they did with that minimum wage was outsource jobs to way poorer people making way less money.
1: Well, the whole agricultural labor thing is something, of course, I know a lot about and how they pushed a lot of that to other countries, you know, you, now, you know, now you're seeing grapes and blueberries from Central, from Central and South America. You know, all that stuff used to be in my old stomping grounds in the San Joaquin Valley. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we, are, we are transforming the economy for the worse with these, with these influences. And, um, you know, as I, as I talked about the beginning, where we are with labor now is I think you have these unions are really captured entities by within the halls of power. And it's not, it's not within the nature of any entity that walks in the halls of power to truly be able to represent "quote unquote" like the little guy, so to speak. So it has fallen from what it was. Now, what's interesting, I will say about the Starbucks thing. This, this is the part they don't really talk about in the media. The Starbucks thing is really interesting because in most of the circumstances with Starbucks workers, they have not utilized one of the established unions. These are are actually back to we're seeing sort of this little trend of workers forming their own little unions within their own workplace and raising their own voice, which has its own set of difficulties to it, but I think it's a far superior way for them to go. And I would encourage them to do that if they're going to do this. Now, the problem for these Starbucks workers... It was Starbucks
0: that I saw the plant.
1: Right. Well, what's going to happen in Starbucks is what Starbucks workers truly don't understand is they probably have it about as good as they'll ever get it. Because Starbucks is so easy to automate. I mean...
0: Right. I mean, that's the thing.
1: Coffee is just like... You know, you can make a machine that spits out X ounces of coffee, X ounces of water, X ounces of cream. Right. I mean, it's so easy to automate that. So it's easier than McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, it's even easier. And that's easy. Right. Right. I mean, so these are all jobs. These are all jobs that are going to disappear. No, but what
0: I'm saying is the plant that I saw was at Starbucks. So I'm wondering if... It's Starbucks' plan to have the union eyes thing allow them, give them cover for automating.
1: Probably, I mean, probably. I mean, they're playing games with those kids at the bargaining table because those kids are not equipped. I've been following it; they're not. Right. They don't know what they're doing. But, but I mean, I feel I'd like rather, that's by I'd rather, design. I mean, I'd, ra- I'd rather have that than see you know the, the the UAW making money off of it as they do. And I mean, the level of corruption within these these unions. Which, as with anything that gets captured and it gets money poured into it, the, the corruption it goes, goes hand in hand with it. And yes. the are you know, it's just, it's not, it's not what it was intended to be. And it's not really coll- collective bargaining is broken because of it. And, you know, it's what are being reported as like this union resurgence and union victories are PR, because as I mentioned, we're not seeing the represent the union representation of the private sector rising. They haven't turned the, 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 things around even though legally things are much more favorable for them legally and we have only seen the beginning of the, uh, the r&d on automation has only begun like you know they're doing essentially when you see a couple of kiosks in your mcdonald's yeah they're, that's beta testing
0: yes right? yes 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 and they're okay, also so-
1: they're also training us grocery stores are a fantastic example of this Go to walmart sometime. they still have rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of of lines and some of us some of us, Monica, are old enough to remember when you used to go to the grocery store and if there were more than like two people in a line, they'd pick up the microphone and they'd start and get another. They did not want you waiting right. in line. They want you waiting in line right. now and so you go use the self-check. That's right. They're 100%. They're you.
0: They're doing that at the airport too to get you to do clear. Mm-hmm. They're, They're slowing things down. So a couple of things. Um... Some quack says Starbucks has already put a lot of money into automating their espresso machines for efficiency over the past twenty years. So this is probably the they're probably ready now. Mm-hmm. So they're going to let these kids, you know, and and what happens is even if the kids win, the just by attrition they'll like stop. They just won't hire any more people ever, and then it's over. So you've what you've done is destroyed an industry without necessarily hurting yourself. But I wanted to make a point about about the slowdowns. And, I need,
1: let me grab something I want to show you. Hold on, okay. I don't know how well this is going to show on the camera, but this is a very rare piece of artwork.
0: I can see it. Go ahead. Tell me what it is.
1: And what this depicts, a friend of mine gave this to me, an old friend. This is a piece of propaganda we used to use against the United Farm Workers Union in election campaigns. And that's the UFW's black eagle symbol turned into a vulture. And it's standing over a graveyard, and all the gravestones are companies that got, that were under, United oh. Home Workers' contract that went out of business. And it shows the date they were founded and the date they went out of business as the birth and death Wow. Piece. And then in the foreground there's an open grave with a question mark in it.
0: Please take nice. a picture of that so I can include it in the post when I post this the show. This is one of
1: only two. So the guy who originally drew this drew a bunch of them and handed them out to all of us so we could use them. And this is one of, and then we all Xeroxed it over and over and over again. And God, I'm old. We use ha ha A and
0: mimeo. You know, mimeoed it. <laughs> and,
1: uh, I didn't think there were any originals left. And a, a dear old friend of mine gave me that. And oh, he has it's an original. Only other, there are only two actual original pen drawings that exist. That one and the one wow. my friend has.
0: Well, I need a photo of it so I can include it. Um I absolutely want to include it in the in the posting of this show. Well, that's
1: the message, I think, that, that power unions destructive. They do destroy industries, ultimately. Right. Never forget when you talk about minimum wage, and this is not a conspiracy. This is well documented. Minimum wage was a eugenics initiative. The whole idea behind minimum wage was yeah. to starve subnormal people out of existence.
0: I think also
1: it had to do... with they saw as deficient make it impossible for them to survive.
0: It coincided with, I believe, migration of Blacks from South to North. And then they were like, okay, we can keep them from getting these jobs if you make the floor of wages so high that really only an experienced worker could justify that employment position. black,
1: Black people were one of the groups that they saw as deficient. But they didn't want people who were disabled, people who were Black, people, they didn't want people who could go to somebody and say, I'll sweep your floor for a hot meal and a bed for the night. Right. Right. And so, and some small shop owner says, Yeah, yeah. you know what? We got a little extra food for dinner tonight. We can feed you. And I got a cot. Go yeah. ahead and sweep my floor. Yeah. They wanted to prevent that. They wanted to make it impossible for people at the fringes of society Why? to survive by selling their labor for what it was worth in the market.
0: They wanted them to die or what? Yes.
1: Oh, my and there's, gosh. Yes, there's lots and lots. You, go, you can go down the Google rabbit hole on it.
0: I think that's probably well, in this book. People
1: who, are with, people who are within the Roosevelt administration talked about this openly, that minimum wage would make it impossible for these folks to survive. Yeah, the railroad union really was strong behind it because black workers were dominating the railroad by undercutting the the, the wages of white workers.
0: Yeah, this book... It says, in only one place of redress, Bernstein offers a bold reinterpretation of American legal history, arguing that American labor and occupational laws enacted by state and federal governments after the Civil War and into the 20th century benefited dominant groups in society to the detriment of those who lacked political power, both intentionally and incidentally those laws restricted in particular to job mobility and economic opportunity of blacks, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, I think that I can probably find some of those answers right in
1: here in this cool book. Right, back in back in that uncomfortable time that they try to memory hold when you know eugenics was an appropriate thing for people to be in favor of, yeah, right. They, t- which was the era, by the way, I believe the the Fairlie Standard Act was nineteen thirty three. Yes, believe. it was Standard So that would have been at a time when it was appropriate, and you know, it was a, it was actually fashionable to be in support of eugenics. Yeah, it's in the there Congressional are, Record. and there are statements among among intellectuals of the time and people within the 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 roosevelt administration that they literally wanted to make it impossible for sort of the subnormals of the world to survive yeah so you know interesting history runs deep in our in our in our culture and that stuff is all still buried Ah. there you know within you know we're still pushing up minimum wage my
0: son went to a high school in la that was Super, super liberal, whatever, but it was established by eugenicists back in the day. And I'm like, don't they realize... Like, and, it, and they were like total COVID Nazis. And I'm like, it's to- could- they haven't changed. But um, so I did want to just make a little point about my own family. My uncle was in a union and he said when he showed up for work and he was just a go-getter... When he was trying to work they the union guys would just all go like this to him like slow down put their hand up and part of it wasn't just that they didn't want to work that hard which absolutely was they were usually they were government like in New York everything is unionized so all the road work everything's super super unionized and a lot of it's like government contracts so there's like nobody want minding the store, nobody pulling on the other I always think of it as, uh, you know, unionized government situations, like theres it's a tug of war, but there's nobody on the well, other end of the rope.
1: Construction works in two ways.
0: But hold so, on, let me finish this one thing, which is one of the reasons they wanted them to slow down was because they wanted the contract to last longer. And if you did the work too fast, everybody would be out of a job.
1: Well, one of the, the, the most poisonous things that unions always insist on in contracts, they love seniority systems seniority is the, the thing that they always want to be the dividing line. And the problem with seniority systems is that it destroys the incentive for people to perform, right? What seniority encourages you to do is do just good enough of a job to not get fired because then as you build up your seniority, you're right. just from being there, right? But that, that kid who is a go-getter, who's just starting out, and he wants to like conquer the world, goes out and conquers the world but nothing happens except until that clock advances. So his his motivation gets beaten out of him by the seniority system itself.
0: It burns out. Oh, that's interesting. Which, I didn't and, think of that.
1: It's more insidious than the labor cost part of you is that in, employers cannot reward those who strive and cannot grow the culture in which people are competing with each other and they're striving to mm-hmm. achieve because there's no benefit to it. You can't reward anyone for it. Hmm. You know, people people respond according to their incentives. And the right. seniority system just incentivizes everybody to be in that, that flat line of mediocrity. Right. And yeah. I mean the
0: education school teachers and stuff, it seems like that's a big thing there.
1: Um, so it's, it's one of the most insidious parts of, of unionization is the love mm. of fair with, with seniority. And what is, what you, this is a big generalization, but what I generally see in unionized workplaces is that the employee, the, the, the workers who are, the most ambitious, the most hardworking, the most determined to succeed typically are unhappy being unionized. And the people that are at the weaker end of the scale tend to really like their union.
0: When I used to be on the radio, I'd get a lot of calls from people who were complained about their union shops. They hated being in a union. Maybe it's a self selected group of people who were listening to libertarian radio.
1: You know, my, my, my wife is a public school teacher. So uh, she really liked the the uh, the union in one district that she was in and felt they stood up with for, uh, for her against, you know, issues with the administration. And she's a special education teacher. So a lot of times she has to kind of fight for her kids and finds herself at odds with the system. But she was in another district where she didn't find the union to be helpful at all. So it can vary from place to place. But in general, I think it's a flawed structure because of the economics of it. And because of how captured it's become. And if it's, yes. if you're ever going to have it work the way that it really should work as an economic force for workers to, to gain an equal footing, or at least, you know, a better footing at the bargaining table, it has to be something as flawed as it might be. And it has to be something that the workers are doing for themselves. And you, you just, you, having this massive structure that siphons away, siphons away their wages to the benefit of Corporate structure that pours money into politics to feed corruption. It's the same problem that we have of why we have this massive government structure that interferes with the market in the first place. As much as I mock libertarians, they're not wrong <laughs> about, about the importance right. of markets and the importance of competition. Yes. And the general idea that that just the you know,
0: institution has been corrupted like with everything else.
1: Well, you know, I tend to be more of a mind that Corruption is inevitable and government is inevitable. Agreed. I don't believe the stateless society is possible. I actually think what we should strive for is a government that's very inept, but yeah. dominated by low level corruption. Right. So when you want to get a permit to build something onto your house, You should know who the guy is and how much it's going to cost you to get that permit. That's an acceptable form of corruption because it's economic exchange and you're getting something that actually benefits you from this crappy government. The problem we have in our government now is all of that graft is happening at such a high level. Yes. We get nothing and we don't know what the price tag is. (laughs) That is certainly... The never-ending price tag and we get nothing for it.
0: That's an original take. I hadn't thought of that, but it definitely does. I do feel powerless. But I have to say one thing, and then I want you to tell me anything you think we haven't covered. But as I've been, I've been in crappy jobs. I've been in bad like roommate situations. And over the years, I have concluded that for me, the most important liberty is freedom of association. To work where you don't want to work, with whom you do not want to work, to have no control over that and also like no control over with whom you live or whatever, that is just misery, misery having to associate with people you don't like. But when an an industry gets hijacked or corrupted by something like this, I do believe people have callings. Like maybe you want this job, you want to do a certain job. So if the industry is completely... Uh, overrun by unions. You cannot do that job unless you are part of this association that you don't, you know, uh, approve of or is exploitive. I feel like that's just a, it's just a bad, it's a public bad.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, my general advice to anybody, and it's the advice that I've given to my own kids, is do whatever you can and whatever you have to do to put yourself in a position where you can, even if it's a business of one, that you can be your own business and control yeah. your income. I mean, it was the smartest thing I ever did. Yeah. To, you know, Even to the point of like, I thought I was doing that when I was a partner in the big law firm. You know, I had, mm-hmm. two, I had two partners and I was part of an institution. And in the end of it, I realized I wasn't really in control of anything. So I started my own thing and there was a lot of like headache and heartache and all of that. But yep. It was the smartest thing that I ever did, both in terms of money that I made, but more than the money was the freedom to feel like I had my own destiny within my own control. And especially when COVID came along, you know, I had no idea something like that was going to happen. But when COVID came along, the fact that I had this, you know, this economic resource of owning this business that I could do what I wanted to do and I didn't have to follow rules that I didn't want to follow and I could go where I wanted to go. It, you know, that was something that was very reassuring for me. And so whatever you know, if there's young people that are listening to this, whatever it is that you want to pursue, think of it like a business and figure out how to make money at it, where you know what? You don't have to make a lot of money to make as much as you're making in your crappy job, right? If, if you control your overhead, right. If you control cost, you can make the same money you're making in your crappy yeah. job, doing something where, even if it's hard, that you that you have control. Right.
0: I agree totally. Have you ever read uh, Ted Kaczynski's manifesto? What's It's in a book called Technological Slavery. I have not
1: read the whole thing, but I have read parts.
0: Well, he talks about the power principle, which uh, there's four elements of it, but it's you need to have autonomy. What you do needs to have meaning. It has to be hard. I forget the last one, but I do think that when you switch from working for somebody or working in an institution, working in a matrixy thing to doing your own, the satisfaction you get and that like psychological value of that, you, you don't really need that much money. You really don't need that. You don't actually need the luxuries because the fulfillment you're only, you only have to treat yourself when you're miserable all the time. Like the fulfillment of having a, something that's worthwhile, it, it do, you don't need to get, You you don't and you don't need to consume as much.
1: And of course, that's part of the whole rigged system. No, I agree. I mean, well, I mean, I'm a person who sold that my business at its at its peak earning. I sold it. Oh my god. Paid off all my debts and you know, moved to the middle of nowhere. Yeah,
0: I'm so happy for you. And should we tease how what a what a 180 we're gonna do in our next episode together in celebration of Christmas? We're gonna um At your suggestion, which I think is a great one, although I'm not sure I'm up for the task. uh, we're I think you and I both were away from the were born, raised Catholic, then went away from the church and went back to the church. Is that correct? That's correct. And we're gonna talk about that process. And and I personally like people ask me why I'm some people think I'm black pilled, but if they actually listen to my show, they know that I'm not because I have a lot of joy and hope and i only can get any kind of hope out of you know the the idea that there's something greater that well what i would
1: what what i would remind people of who feel that way you know who feel black pill the way you want to call it yeah i'm trying to think of how to describe sort of the the, whether you want to call it kind of more right-wing or more libertarian folks which tend to populate those spheres. and i tell my kids this the to keep in mind that what I think is the greatest crime of our time by our so called adversaries, you know, this sort of leftist, elitist, whatever that we live under, is their continuing desire and their incredible effort to steal hope from young people. To tell young people they're going to die in 10 years, they shouldn't even bother to have children, that there's right. no future. You can never buy a house. Look at the look at how unfair the system is. You'll never be able to buy a house. Right? Oh, you're black. You live in a white supremacist world. You can't do anything.
0: Yes, very you know, disempowering
1: messaging that young people are yes. inundated with about how the world is against them and they can never have anything.
0: You know, I worry about that with some of the conspiracy podcasts. Some of the bigger names, in you know, they are just blackpill constant. And it's so
1: yeah, remind yourself that's the weapon they're using against our children. Both sides are using it. That's the weapon. Don't do it yourself, don't do it too. I tell my kids all the time to dream big and do like when I talk to my kids about stuff like my feelings on things like climate change. My kids are young, I mean, they're young adults now. And one's in college, one's out of college. So they've been hit with a lot of indoctrination. When I talk about things like climate change, I tell them I don't believe in it. And I tell them I think that, that I hate it because it tells people, the young people like them to not have hope. And I tell them, reject it, have hope. The world's not going to blow up in 10 years. We're not all going to boil. We're not all going to burn. They're lying to you. Plan for your future because it's there. Nice. Well, that's an heard, excellent way. You know, my, my oldest just got out of, he's gonna be mad I talked. My oldest one just got out of college. He graduated this past year. He uh, went to school and studied jazz guitar. <laughs>
0: I make fun of people like that. <laughs> I know, but, but, but actually, I mean, he knows something. Unlike my kids, who are probably he's, getting brainwashed. Making a
1: living with the guitar. So that's he,
0: amazing. Plus, he, it was valuable
1: time. He he teaches guitar at School of Rock, which is a nationwide yes, franchise yeah. now. That's great. He uh, performs in a in what he calls a boomer rock cover band. <laughs> I love that. They'll play weddings and country clubs and interference and making good money doing that. And then he has his own band on the side with his friends, but he's paying his bills with it. And he's dreaming of someday having his own guitar studio where he can record, he can teach. He's getting really into like building custom guitars. He's customized a guitar for himself. And he's thinking of this very commercially of he doesn't want to work for somebody else. Yeah, that's fantastic. But the most important thing is, like, that I'm proud of as a dad is that I taught my kids to dream about the future and dream big about the future and chase whatever it is that they think those dreams are. But they get hit with so much like hopelessness. And that's exactly like so many, so many in yeah, our so quote it. unquote sphere, as you say, conspiracy folks want to believe that everything's falling apart. I just refuse to live that way. It's a terrible way to live.
0: Right, and and there's what if it doesn't? I mean. You you can't first of all, you can't live like that. And and there isn't there isn't that much we can do about what's happening at the top. So spending a lot of time worrying about it is is a waste. And so, all right, so let's say the world's gonna end in 10 years. What do you that's even more important to build your own guitar? It's even more important to do something worthwhile.
1: And I think faith gives you the ability to embrace that view of hope in the world.
0: All right. Well, that's where we're going to pick up on our next episode, which is December twentieth at ten a.m. Pacific, right here. On uh, you can get it at uh, YouTube.com/slash Monica Perez or Monica Perez Show. I don't even know. And of course, that's how you can listen live and participate and get into the chat with other people. And then, um, but of course, we'll always be in the feed. So that's it. So we'll we'll be together again before Christmas. So I will wish everybody a, a happy Advent. Let's say, and then we can. We can talk about Christmas on the 20th.
1: Well, thank you again for having me.
0: Thank you. All right, guys, I will see you soon. Thanks for coming. Bye, everybody.